What certainties in life would give you a good night's sleep? Um, maybe it's something small like the assurance that your alarm will go off at the right time and therefore get you up at the right time in the morning. Maybe it's the promise of, of people in your life, kn knowing that they will be there uh, in a day, in a week, in a year. Perhaps job security or, or trustworthy leaders come to mind. But are any of those things really certain? What is certain in life and in death? At least one thing is certain. And Lord willing, we'll discover it in 1 Kings chapters 12 through 16 this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find the passage on page 293. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open during this time and, and follow along, otherwise you might get bored. But if you stay engaged with the text of Scripture, I hope and trust that the Lord will be at work in each and every one of our hearts this morning. This morning, in our study of 1 Kings chapters 12 through 16, we'll see the descent and decline into exile begin with Israel's division. Solomon's golden reign has concluded. He is dead and buried. And his son rises to the throne. And he displays none of the wisdom that his father had. Happy Father's Day. Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam's utter foolishness, it, it fractures the kingdom. Breaks it in two. Resulting in a kingdom in the north, kingdom of Israel, the kingdom in the south, the kingdom of Judah. This emerges in fulfillment of the word of the Lord that was delivered to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. Due to Solomon's disobedience, the kingdom would be torn in two. And if there's a single theme that dominates the, the five chapters, these five chapters, it is the certainty of the word of the Lord. In these chapters, God's words of promise come true. His words of judgment come true. Over and over again, we're, we're told that the, the word of the Lord is delivered, and then it is disobeyed. And then the consequences emerge. It's delivered by prophets. It's disobeyed by kings. Even prophets disobey the word of the Lord and face the consequences. Disobedience brings division, destruction, and desolation, we'll find in these chapters. And these chapters, as I said, they are bound together by the certainty of the word of the Lord. And there's also a pivot point in the middle of them, too. Chapters 12 through 14, they, they chronicle the, the initial division that takes place in the kingdom in fulfillment of the word of the Lord, while chapters 15 and 16 chronicle the ongoing disobedience to the word of the Lord. So we'll study this portion of Scripture in two sections under two headings. Initial division and ongoing disobedience. Let's begin where chapter 12 begins. Chapter 12 where the stage is set for the initial division of the kingdom in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. Read 1 Kings chapter 12 verses 1 to 5. Follow along there as I read. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. 
And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. These verses, they, they set the stage for what unfolds in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And they should be a, a happy occasion, a happy opening to the coronation of Solomon's son as king. But this is no rubber stamp meeting. As Israel has done in the past with David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and with Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29, so all Israel, they, they gather around Rehoboam to make him king. And on this occasion, there is a, a conversation between the prospective king, Rehoboam, and the people of Israel. They pledge allegiance. This pledge of allegiance comes from the people with a request for this prospective king to lighten the yoke that's been laid upon them. And Rehoboam, he, he appears to have the wisdom of Solomon, and he, he asks for some time to seek counsel. In verses 6 through 11, just scan your eyes across those verses. You see there, in verses 6 through 11, Rehoboam gets counsel from the old men who counseled wise Solomon. And he gets counsel from the young men he grew up with. The wise old men, you see, they, they counsel him to lighten the yoke of Israel and rule as a servant of the people. Look at verse 8. Notice what, what happens in verse 8. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So you see, in, instead of listening to the men who helped Solomon, wise Solomon, wisely rule and successfully govern, raising Israel to the, to the height of wealth where just to display the glory and greatness of the kingdom, they could possess hundreds of useless shields made of gold. Rehoboam abandons their counsel and promises to make the weight of his rule even heavier than his father. Now, if you skip down to verse 12, you'll see how Rehoboam, how he answers the people. And as we read verses 12 to 15, notice that the purposes of God are at work in fulfilling his word and keeping his promises. Verse 12, so, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for here's the reason for it was a turn of affairs brought about by who by the Lord why that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat their listening to Rehoboam's answer is Jeroboam he had been chased out of the kingdom by Solomon but he's now returned in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 
31 to 40. So the chapter before what we're looking at now, Jeroboam uh, received the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him. And Jeroboam was promised that he would receive 10 of Israel's 12 tribes, that he would rule over them. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he unwisely and angrily answers the people. And this answer is what the Lord used to bring about his promise to Jeroboam and the division of Solomon's kingdom. From the verses that follow, we see that all of the tribes except Judah abandoned Rehoboam's rule. And this enrages Rehoboam and he he raises an army of 180,000 strong to take back what he had lost. But notice what he is confronted by in verse 22. Do you see there in verse 22? He is confronted by the word of the Lord through Shemaiah. Now, from, from this point forward in the Old Testament, this is about 922 B.C. From this point forward, the people of God are divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, a little congregational interaction. Who's in the northern kingdom? Israel. Israel. All right, who's in the southern kingdom? Yes, there we go. All right. That's going to be really important as you read through the prophets and read through the book of Kings. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And these people are divided. And David's descendants, they're going to be those who who sit, who reign on the throne in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. And various rulers, beginning with Jeroboam, will reign on the northern kingdom, on the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the focus of the narrative lens, it shifts from Rehoboam in the south to Jeroboam in the north at verse 25 of chapter 12. But before we shift our attention from the south to the north, we should learn something about what has transpired here in in Rehoboam's interaction. Notice carefully that God's divine sovereignty is working through human agency. Isn't that the thrust of verse 15? Verse 15, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word. See, divine providence rules over this daft and dreadful decision by Rehoboam. God wanted to vindicate his word, fulfill his promises from 1 Kings 11, and accomplish his purposes. There's something that is irresistible about the nature of God's promises, plans, and purposes that should actually be a comfort to us. Our God really is in control. Even when, especially when, foolhardy human actors are acting out of control. Dear Christian, when inconsiderate, selfish, heavy-handed rulers strut their stuff on the human stage, remember that there is a divine director who has written the script and knows how his dramatic story will end. It will not end according to their will, but according to his. Our God is in control. In verse 25 of chapter 12, the narrative shifts from the fool in the south to the idolater in the north. And as we read the book of Kings, something becomes readily apparent. Though there are two kingdoms, these kingdoms are often described in relation to one another. In fact, in verses 25 to 33 of chapter 12, Jeroboam, the king of Israel in the north, takes action to build idols and altars due to his fear of the south. See if you can spot Jeroboam's insecurity 
in verses 25 to 31 of chapter 12. You see there in verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, notice this is where idolatry emerges from. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, right there in the south, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and he made two golden calves. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. As one believer observed, Jeroboam leads the people of the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry because of his insecurity. He was afraid that the people would leave him for the southern kingdom because that was the center of worship for the people of God. And please remember that the Lord of heaven and earth, Yahweh God, promised him. God promised Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 38 and 39, that if he walked in the ways of God and did what was right in his sight, then the Lord God would make Jeroboam a sure house. In other words, the Lord promised that He would firmly establish Jeroboam's house if he walked in His ways. God gave Jeroboam His word. And so there was no need for him to fear the loss of his kingdom. But Jeroboam's fear led him to do something faithless. His insecurity led to idolatry. His lack of control led him to try and exert control. How often... In our fear, do we abandon the promises of God, the sure word of God, of our Creator, for the safety and security of creation? How often do we exchange the Creator for the creation? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about how our insecurity leads to or even reveals our idolatry? It makes so much sense, doesn't it? When we get anxious and afraid, we look for a way to feel safe, to exert control in a potentially deteriorating situation. So often we turn to people for safety, we turn to institutions to protect us, we turn to wealth for security, we turn to work for our haven. We make all of these excuses, if only I had this or if only I had that, so I need to do this or I need to do that then we reassure ourselves that everything will be okay. But our control is an illusion of our own making. And so often we're disappointed when we discover to our surprise, somehow we're surprised by it, isn't it, aren't we? That we're not actually in control at the end of the day. When did God in His word of promise cease being enough for us? When did the word of our rock and our refuge and our Redeemer cease to be our sure hope. We can't put too much distance between ourselves and Jeroboam. We, we can't really say, I, I'm not like him. We too have been faithless and fearful. But remember this from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. 
Dear Christian, when, when you are afraid, don't go after the world. Go after the one who made it and who controls everything in it. The one who will remake it. Jeroboam had God's word of promise delivered to him in 1 Kings 11, and he discarded it in chapter 12. In chapter 13, he despises it. He despises the word of the Lord. Turn to chapter 13 and begin reading there in verse 1, verses 1 to 4. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar of Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. Here, Yahweh confronts Jeroboam's sinful worship through a prophet who delivers the word of the Lord. And this prophet predicts that Josiah will become king some 280 years later. Notice the certainty of God's word. 280 years later. This prophet predicts that Josiah will burn the bones of Jeroboam's idolatrous priests. This is a divine declaration of displeasure upon Jeroboam's new worship centers. In short, the Lord is displeased with Jeroboam. And he demands that these be split, the ashes uh, uh, be spilt on the ground. Jeroboam wants this prophet seized, and as soon as he gives the command, the Lord's judgment strikes and shrivels his hand. And as you can see from the verses that follow, Jeroboam is chastened by this, and he pleads with the man of God, pleads with him to restore his hand. Mercifully, God restores Jeroboam's hand. And all of this should lead Jeroboam to abandon the altars and the idolatry, to repent and return to the Lord, to return to faithfulness to His Word. In verse 7 of chapter 13, Jeroboam, he invites the man of God to eat with him. But notice how the prophet responds there in verse 8. Verse 8, And the man of God said to the king, If you gave me half your house, I will not go in with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way, and he did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So the prophet you see here, he's being obedient to the word of the Lord. He's, he's setting an example to Jeroboam. He, he's obeying that word. But then... Then a curious thing happens on his way out of town. In verses 11 to 14, an old prophet chases him down. Notice his request there in verse 15. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. The, the man of God, he immediately responds by repeating what he just told King Jeroboam. 
Uh, the word of the Lord demands that I not eat bread, that I not drink water in this place. I've got to keep moving on. Well, the wicked old prophet one-ups the man of God, saying in verse 18, But I'm also a prophet. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Is this the truth? No, we, we get the narrative comment there at the end of that verse, don't we? The author tells us what? But he lied to him. But by the way, this, it, it, this scene is why we read from Galatians chapter 1 earlier in the service. It seems like Paul may have had this in the back of his mind uh, as he was writing to the churches in Galatia when he said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. See, part of Paul's point there, which is congruent with what we read here, is that God does not contradict his own word. The, the, the man of God should have known better and he should have obeyed better. When they sit down at the table, notice what comes again in verse 20. What comes again? The word of the Lord. The man of God was confronted with his own disobedience to the word of the Lord. Those who deliver God's word ought not disobey God's word. Those who deliver God's word ought not disobey God's word. Why not? Because a lion might get you. Look at verse 24. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. And the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. Judgment will come to those who deliver God's word and yet disobey God's word. This is a frightening text for preachers. And, dear Christian, if you're thinking carefully about this text, then you will come to realize it's a frightening text for you, too. You are one who delivers the word of God. Or at least you should be. As we prayed earlier in the service, Jesus commanded us to deliver the good word of the gospel. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, then you've been commanded to deliver God's word. Are you obeying or disobeying that word, that command? What is the point of this message about two prophets? What does it have to do with what has gone before with, with Jeroboam and his idolatrous kingdom in the north? Well, the, the word about this disobedient prophet is, is running to and fro across the land. The news is, is getting out that he's disobeyed. And notice what the author of Kings says in verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. He should have, right? After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. And any who would he ordain to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off 
and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. You hear what the author of Kings is saying? He's saying that this should have been a clear sign and signal to Jeroboam to turn from his idols and his altars. He's saying that if, if God will not spare his disobedient prophets, he will not spare Jeroboam and his disobedient priests. In fact, this becomes explicit in chapter 14. Here the Lord promises that the house of Jeroboam will be consumed by fire. The chapter opens with a heartbreaking news. You see there that Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. No one wants a child to be sick or ill. And any time a child falls ill, parents fall to their knees in prayer. We should be on our knees more often for our children. For even when they are well, they are sick with sin. Jeroboam is clearly concerned about his son, and so he, he sends his wife in disguise to Ahijah the prophet. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 4, that Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his old age. He, he could not physically see, but he was given spiritual sight from God. The Lord disclosed to him that Jeroboam had sent his wife. When she walks through the door, Ahijah says in verse 6, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Neither she nor Jeroboam could hide from God's sight. All that King Jeroboam did, the Lord saw. The prophet Ahijah delivered unbearable news to her. He promised Jeroboam that because he had, verse 9, done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourselves other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back, therefore God would bring upon bring harm upon his house, the house of Jeroboam, and he will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has what? He's spoken it. Ahijah tells Jeroboam's wife to go home. And that when she does, the child who was sick would die. Strangely, this is somehow cast as a mercy. According to verse 13, the, the Lord would take this child from the earth because there was something pleasing in him. Now, we're not told what that means, but it seems at least possible that God, in his mercy, spared this child from enduring fiery judgment just promised upon Jeroboam's house. He would not grow up he would not endure the sufferings of this world. He would not increase God's wrath against his own sin or face the fiery judgment that his father brought upon his house. This son's death was merely the first word of the Lord that would be fulfilled in verses 17 and 18. The word of the Lord concerning the fiery destruction of Jeroboam's house will be fulfilled in the next chapter, specifically in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 25 to 30. The, the third word of the Lord, the prophet Ahijah, Delivered had to do with the northern, kingdom's Israel, northern kingdom of Israel's removal from the land. You can see it there in verses 15 and 16. And henceforth, verse 15, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed, is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of the good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will surely give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. This is going to be fulfilled much later in 2 Kings 
chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. But staying inside this chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 14, we get, we get the conclusion of Jeroboam's reign. It's a solemn, somber, and sinful conclusion. He warred and he wandered, as one commentator said. And right when we're just about ready to take a break from all of this sinfulness, the author of Kings reminds us that there's another kingdom, the southern kingdom. It's almost as if the, the author of Kings says, yes, Jeroboam was bad, but don't forget that Rehoboam was bad too. Let, let's go back to him. Jeroboam, he warred and he wandered, but so did Rehoboam. Jeroboam led the people away from the living God. He was insecure and he had idols, but you know what? Rehoboam in the south did the same thing. Take a look at chapter 14, verse 21. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah, the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. Well, do you remember how chapter 12 began? I know we're at the end of chapter 14, but remember how chapter 12 began? It began with Rehoboam inheriting all of Solomon's gold, including his gold shields. In a few short chapters, we've declined from godliness and gold to brutish idolatry and bronze. Rehoboam and the northern kingdom had the idolatry of Aaron, right? They had the golden calves like what happened in Exodus at their places of worship. But not to be outdone, the southern kingdom of Judah had the idolatry of the Canaanites. Verse 23, you see there, they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. It was not supposed to be this way. But this is what sin and disobedience to the Word of God brings. It reverses the blessings of God and turns them into a curse. Egypt is once again attacking and harassing the people of God. And the nation that God called out to be distinct from the nations in Canaan, to be different from the other nations, looks just like them. All the progress of the Exodus and Joshua's conquest have been undone. But God is not done with His people. Chapter 14 does not end with despair. It ends with hope. Do you, do you realize that? What are the last words of the chapter? You see them there, are they not? And Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. You see, there is still hope. The line of David continues on. And there is still hope that God will yet keep His word to send a son who will reign on the throne of David forever. That's what the exiles who are first reading this book would remember and wait for with faith-filled hope as they saw page after page the certainty of God's Word. With those eyes of faith, they would see that God 
would keep his word and send his king, his savior. And because we know how the Bible ends, we have the privilege of hindsight, knowing that God kept his word in Jesus. We have the joy of knowing that Jesus is not, not a king like Rehoboam. Jesus is, is not a king who rules his people as a harsh taskmaster. He's not a king who threatens a heavy yoke. He is a king who has promised that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. We have the comfort of knowing that Jesus was a true prophet, a prophet who delivered God's word and obeyed God's word. Jesus always did his Father's will. He did not get off the road that his Father told him to get on. He was told to get on the road to Jerusalem and to go there and die. And he stayed on that road and walked faithfully and obeyed unto death. Jesus is a king unlike Jeroboam. He was not insecure. He always rested in his Father's love. He never turned to idolatry and false worship, though Satan offered it to him. No, in his grace, he calls us out of our idolatry and insecurity and on into the worship of the one true God. Jesus is the king who rules a kingdom that's not divided, but that is united in him. In 1 Kings chapters 12 through 14, we've seen the initial division of the kingdom and the downgrade from gold to bronze. Sadly, in 1 Kings chapters 15 and 16, we, we see ongoing disobedience. This is the second point that we need to consider together this morning. Ongoing disobedience. And, and as we begin to consider this, take a look there at the beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting, his, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers. And they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his place. In these verses, we begin to see what is so common in the book of Kings. Verses 1 to 8, they include what is what's commonly known as a regnal formula. Uh, the author uses the same language over and over again to introduce a king and his reign to us. Uh, these regnal formulas often include the year of the king's reign, and the king who was reigning in the opposite kingdom, either in the north or the south, and how long he reigned. Often with the book of Kings, uh, we, we don't really need to get too bogged down in, into these things, these details. The author himself, while he's wanting to faithfully recount history and tell you when it occurred, what he's mostly focusing on 
is why this occurred. It's as if he's saying, look, this happened, but, but I really want you to understand why it happened. Remember, Kings, is, it's something of an explanation of why the people of God has, have suffered in exile. How did the people of God end up in exile? Verse 3 tells us, you see there, verse 3, Abijam walked in all the sins that his father did before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. God promised his people all the way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He gave them his word that if they abandoned the worship of the one true God, they would, they would be removed from the land. Well, Abijam, he's walking in the ways of Rehoboam. He was an idolater, like father, like son. And as an aside, fathers, let's pray that God, He would spare our children of our sins. Pray. Let us fear to sin. And let us pray that that they would not be ensnared by the things that we have been ensnared by. At the same time, let us also point our children and others to God's mercy and faithfulness to His word of promise. Did you notice that in verses 4 and 5? Here we are reminded in verses 4 and 5 that God will remain faithful to His word of promise to David, given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's unfaithfulness, his, his adultery to Bathsheba, and his murder of Uriah the Hittite are hinted at. But even this unfaithfulness in David and the unfaithfulness in and the people will not stop God from being faithful to his promises of mercy. He will send a king. He will send his Messiah. He will send his son to save his people. Are, are you not astounded by this? I mean, haven't we heard enough about the people of God to know that they're not worth the trouble Right? All they do is disobey. All they do is, is turn away from, from the God who, who called them out of slavery, who set them free, who, who led them, walked with them in the wilderness, who fed them from heaven, meeting their daily need day after day after day. He, he gave them a garden land, raised up a king of love, filled, filled their homes with good things, filled their treasuries and their storehouses. We think this and read, they're not worth it. But God, He, he looks upon their helpless estate and says, these are my children. I'm committed to them. I will never leave them or forsake them. Praise God that he, he loves his children better than they love him. Praise God that he never says of us, they're not worth it. Praise God that he never says, all they do is wander away. All they do is disobey. Praise God that He loves us better than we love Him. And we see His ongoing love 
by his faithfulness to his word. You see there in verses 9 to 24, they recount the rule and the reign of Asa. And this this is kind of a bright spot in the narrative. For in Asa, we get a good king. We should really say we actually get a good-ish king. Uh, Read verses 9 to 14. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitute out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. See, Asa himself, he, he remains true to the Lord. He, he removed the male cult prostitute, the idolaters of his fathers, the asher of his mother. And note carefully that Asa, he had a, he had a corrupt mother and father, and yet he did not wander away from the Lord. Just as a believing mom and dad cannot guarantee believing children, so an unbelieving mom and dad cannot guarantee unbelieving children. At, at the end of the day, the Lord is sovereign over salvation. And still, while Asa kept from the idolatry of his parents, he didn't totally vanquish idolatry, did he? He left, he left a foothold in the land by leaving the high places. And eventually the people of Judah, they would return to these high places and fall back into idolatry and sin. Asa only obeyed halfway. It was a kind of a halfway obedience. And we too should be on guard against a kind of halfway obedience. There are two more cautions concerning Asa and this ongoing disobedience that emerge in verses 15 to 24. In in the first instance, Asa seeks the help of Syria in, in dealing with the aggression of the northern kingdom of Israel. When Asa should have sought Yahweh for safety and security, when he should have looked for help from above instead of help from below. In the second instance, you'll notice how at the conclusion of Asa's reign, the author uh, slips in, in an unusual comment. See if you can spot that unusual comment. Verse 23 of chapter 15. Verses 23 and 24. Now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might and all that he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers <coughs> and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. These are common comments which conclude uh, reigns of of the kings in in this book. It's as if the the author says, look, if if you want more details on how how this ended up, go go over the Chronicles. The the Chronicler has those those details. Uh, And then he says in almost formulaic fashion, oh yeah, and he died too. But but what did the author slip in in between these formulaic comments? You can find more information about this in Kings and yes, he died. Talk about Ace's feet. That's an unusual comment in an unusual place, which means the author wants us to puzzle over it. The first readers would have thought, okay, so Asa, he was, he was a pretty good king, 
But, and then they would read this comment about the feet and think, oh yeah, he wasn't that great after all. I, I remember what the chronicler said about that. He said that the Lord afflicted Asa with a disease in his feet because he jailed a prophet. A man who spoke the word of the Lord to him. Asa, though judged here as true to God, uh, which means that he didn't personally worship idols, he was still marked and marred by sin and by disobedience. He, he should leave us longing for a better king, one who doesn't despise God's word or jail God's prophets. At verse 25, we begin the long process that will continue on throughout most of the book of Kings. The author of Kings, he's going to bounce back and forth between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom in, in kind of a roughly chronological fashion. He'll kind of press on ahead in time while he's looking at one kingdom, and then he'll kind of rewind the tape to catch the other kingdom up. So as you read the book of Kings, that's what you need to understand is, is happening. It's, it's roughly chronological, but it's bouncing back and forth. Along the way, he, he shows the certainty and the centrality of the word of the Lord. From 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 25, stretching through the end of chapter 16, we meet five kings from the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's a hint about all of the kings of the northern kingdom. Um, they're all basically bad. All of them. There's not really a good one in the bunch. Um, the next five kings are Nadab. You can probably see it from the headings there in your Bible. Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, and Ahab. And they all basically get the same evaluation. So for example, Nadab's evaluation is found there in chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. Verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. This is the same evaluation that Bashah gets in verse 34. Elah, the next king, however, is condemned as a drunk. And he's killed by Zimri. Zimri's reign lasts a mere seven days. At which point he burns the house down, literally. We'll more on that in a moment. Omri then takes over as king of Israel. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, pass over to chapter 16. Look at verse 25 there. This is what we're told about Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Now, unless you think that that's bad, Omri is outdone by Ahab. So skip down a few verses to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Do you see why I've called this section ongoing disobedience? Chapters 15 and 16 really chronicle kind of escalating evil, or you could say a, a, a descent into depravity. Can you hear the shock and horror of the author's tone when he says in verse 31 of chapter 16? And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethabal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. The author of Kings, he's incredulous at the ingenuity of his iniquity. He says there in verse 33, And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. Remember, we should view all of this disobedience in connection with the word of the Lord. Ahab, he disobeys the word of the Lord. Even the word of the Lord which was spoken so long ago. Take a look at verse 34. This is what this is about. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. 
He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagu, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. See, here the author of Kings is reminding us of the word of the Lord spoken in the book of Joshua. After the fall of Jericho, this is what Joshua says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest shall he set up its gates. Ahab completely disregarded the word of the Lord spoken through Joshua so long ago. But do you know who did not forget that word? Do you know who did not fail to keep his promise? Do you know who remained faithful to his promise? God. In fact, not only does ongoing disobedience connect these kings together, but so does God's faithfulness to his word. So, so turn back to Nadab, back in chapter 15. You'll see there that Bashah, he, he swoops in and kills King Nadab. But take a look at what the author of Kings says about this in verses 28 to 30. Verse 28, So Bashah killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. For it was the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin. And because of the anger which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what God promised Jeroboam back in chapter 14, verse 14. Bashaw was the instrument of God's judgment. He was the fulfillment of God's judgment. But he was also the recipient of God's judgment too. For in verse 1 of chapter 16, do you see verse 1? The word of the Lord comes to a prophet named Jehu. And there the Lord promises that Bashaw's house will come to an end. And a mere 12 verses later, we read this about Zimri and his conquest and his conspiracy against Elah. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 12. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Bashah. According to what? According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Bashah by Jehu the prophet. Just as Bashah was an instrument of God's judgment and involved with the fulfillment of God's promise, so was Zimri. And again, remember what was said back in chapter 14, verse 10. There we read, Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam. Now take a look at what Zimri does there at the end of his seven-day reign in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 18. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Now, I suspect you may be growing weary of this refrain. The word of the Lord is certain. Why belabor this point? Because we need to be persuaded, deep in our bones, in our souls, that God's word is certain. We need to be persuaded because it is the same certainty that carries the judgment of God, that carries the mercy of God to us. When we step out into this world this afternoon or Monday morning, we need to be certain that we have a certain word from our God. A certain word of promise. 
the, wor- the world, the flesh, and the devil will tell us that this book, that this word from God, it cannot be trusted. But what have we seen here from Kings? God's word can be trusted. And we need to be certain that God keeps his word of promise. God kept his word to Adam when he promised to send a seed to crush the serpent. God kept his word to Abraham to give him a son who would be a blessing to the nations. God kept his word to Moses to raise up a prophet like him, whom the world should listen to. God kept his word to David to give him a descendant to sit on his throne forever. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has kept the lamp in Jerusalem. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 4. So he could send the light of the world. The word made flesh. John 1, 14. Jesus is God's word to us. He has spoken a certain word to us in Jesus. And it is a word of forgiveness and hope and love. God the Father sent his one and only Son to obey and keep God's word unto death. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep on the cross. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But that is not all. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He did all of this for us and for our salvation. And we too can be God's children. The children that God never leaves or forsakes, but always loves. We become God's children by loving God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to the Father. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a child of God, I want to invite you to come to Jesus today and to come into God's family. Come to Jesus by repentance, by turning from your sin and by faith. Confess that you, like all of us, we're all like the ancient people of God. Confess that you are sick with sin deserving of God's judgment and confess that you are desperate for God's mercy. God is pleased to love and forgive all of those who come to His Son Jesus, trusting not in themselves and in their good works, but in Jesus, His word of promise in Jesus Christ. So come to Him in faith today. We should conclude. We began this study by recognizing that many of the things we derive our comfort and security from in this life are are not so certain. There is much that is uncertain in this life. But there is one thing that is not. God's commitment to keep His Word is certain. God's commitment to keep His Word is certain. A need of the church today is to live in the confidence that God has kept His Word and will keep His Word. To live and believe with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength that Jesus has come and that He will come again. The calling upon our lives while we wait for His return is to hear and heed God's Word. The calling upon our lives while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ is to deliver God's Word to the world and to fear to disobey it. And still, it is the self-same Word of God that stabilizes and strengthens us for this mission. The Word of God promises us that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. John chapter 5, verse 27. The Word of God promises us that God has set His love upon His people 
And though they struggle and sin time and time again, He will not abandon us. In John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus says to us, And if I go away, prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, our faithful prophet, our faithful priest, our faithful king has given us his word that he will come again. And we can be certain that he will keep it. Let's pray together.